Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to Luke chapter 7. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, These are the events that immediately follow Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, They immediately come down from the mountain. And uh, during the Sermon on the Mount you might say, what does this look like in practice? What does the blessed man look like? And I think we have an illustration right away uh, in this uh, surprising man who's a Roman uh, centurion. So look at verse 1. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, he pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is one who built us our synagogue. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come up under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Father, I pray that You open the richness of this text to us. Father, I pray that it wouldn't just be interesting to our minds, but that it would affect our hearts, that it would change us. Father, I pray for all of our faith. There are some here who do not have saving faith. There's others who do. For those who do, Lord, I pray it would be strengthened to be a great faith. And for those who don't, that You might grant them faith. God, we know that apart from Your Spirit's work, nothing will be done in our hearts. So God, be merciful on us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's message is about faith. Uh, We talk about amazing grace, and we're comfortable in doing that. We might not be so comfortable talking about amazing faith. Uh, I've heard it said by many preachers, there's not much to brag about about our faith, but there's a lot to brag about about the one in whom our faith is in. And yet, my preaching class, I'm taught to preach the heart of the text. What's the point of the text? 
And surprisingly, the point Luke seems to want to make is the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, marveled. Was astonished. Was amazed at a Roman commander's faith. The principle that we'll see that I want that I want you to see is this. Faith and pride are like oil and water. They can never go together. Faith and pride. If, if you're proud, your faith is going to be weak. And if you're weak, your faith will be strong. And we live in a world that everyone's born without faith in God. Not a saving faith. Not a true faith. There's a lot of people that might grow up believing in God in their mind, but the God of their, in their mind is not the God of the Bible. We all live according to a worldview of what we think is true and what we think is right. And apart from salvation in Christ, apart from looking at the Scriptures rightly and believing them rightly, you will create a worldview that makes exception for you before God. It's just a fact. The God you believe in thinks you're pretty good. He might admit you do wrong things, but you're pretty good. This is the world we live in. You go ask people, ask them if they think they're good or bad and whether they're going to heaven or hell. The great majority will believe in God, believe they're going to heaven because they've created a worldview that came from somewhere other than the Scriptures. A preconceived worldview that is not biblical will be devastating to a person's faith, whether he's a Christian or a non-Christian. A preconceived worldview always is one that accommodates one's pride and selfishness. And what we just saw in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus give this ser- gives this sermon that's shocking to the religious people in Israel. Because the Jews, especially the scribes and the Pharisees, the good Jews, the spiritual teachers, if you asked anyone in town who's the most godly people, they're going to walk you over to them. Jesus just preached a sermon that said, those who think they're rich in righteousness, those who are laughing because they think they're at a good state, those who think they're full because God is so happy with them and they have this strong relationship with God, they're the ones that the woes go to at the beginning of the sermon. They're the ones whose house crumbles in the end. It's not built on the rock. In this surprising sermon, Jesus says, the one who is poor in spirit doesn't think he or she has any righteousness, any goodness to offer God, they're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That would have been offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they don't think they have any, 
He says those ones are going to be satisfied. Those who weep over the real, honest look at themselves, they read God's Word, they rightly interpret it, therefore they're rightly exposed under it, and they weep because their sin is not just breaking the rules, but it's offending a personal God. Your Creator. See, there's a whole lot of people who say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but they don't care. There's no sense of brokenness over the evil of the rebellion against our Creator. So he's just preached this sermon and the Pharisees ought to be, if they had ears to hear, devastated because they would just realize that the Messiah didn't come for them. The Messiah came for repentant sinners. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Christ, to lay out the road to Christ. The road he laid out, he preached repentance. The scribes, the Pharisees come up. John looks at him. He says, what are you doing here? This isn't for you, you brood of vipers, children of the snake. You're not repentant. You think you're great. This ministry isn't for you. If you want to be ready for the Messiah, if you want to be ready for Christ, repent. See who you are. Quit extorting money from widows and taking the best seats in the synagogue so that people will glorify you rather than glorify God. And so it's no surprise, although it is a surprise from a humanly perspective, who's going to have the greatest faith in Jesus' day? Anyone that was thinking clearly would say, oh, it's got to be one of these Israelites that knows the Old Testament inside and out, that teaches the law. Surely it's one of the great teachers in Israel that Jesus is just going to be astonished at this person's Faith. And yet, where pride is high, where self-righteousness is king, where worthiness is based on human effort and works and, and being obedient to man-made laws, where pride is great, faith is small. So I wonder, how is your faith? What kind of faith do you have? Do you have the type of faith that Jesus would marvel at? I'm guessing there's more than one in this room when I ask the question, how is your faith? You're thinking of Mark 9.22. where a man has a son who a demon possesses him. Every time he gets close to water, he throws himself into the water. Every time he gets close to fire, he throws himself into the fire. And the Jesus has just been up on the mountain of transfiguration. The disciples are left back. And this man comes to Jesus' disciples and says, can you cast this demon out of my son? Can you heal him? And they couldn't. 
So Jesus comes down to an argument that's going on between the disciples and this man. And this man sees Jesus. His disciples have just failed in casting out this demon. And he said to him, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Okay. Are we going to put this guy in the Hall of Fame of faith? Here's your chance. Here's Christ. Here's the Messiah. If you can do anything, I'm guessing his faith is running low after his disciples just failed. And I think Jesus, with compassion and with a little bit of sarcasm to point out the weakness in the uh, request, says back to him, if you can, so he just says, if you can do anything, heal him. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, when I ask you the question, how is your faith? I'm guessing that line of Scripture maybe ran through your head. I believe, help my unbelief. If you and I are not praying for the strengthening of our faith, we are crazy. Help me believe. Help my unbelief. This man is in a good spot in the sense of, yes, he's at a point of low faith, but he doesn't have much confidence in himself. He's looking to God for mercy in the area of faith. In fact, in uh, Luke 17.5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in an area, and it would obey you. <laughs> He's evidently saying their faith isn't even as great as a mustard seed at that point in time. But the disciples are saying, Lord, increase our faith. What it means to be born in the flesh, sinful, means doubt comes easy and faith comes hard. It comes hard, yet it's the most important thing in your life. The Apostle Paul said, the life I now live in the flesh, okay, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, whatever he says next is really important, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. How do you do it, Paul? How do you suffer for the Gospel? How have you taken all these beatings at the hands of the Jews and continue to love them? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul gets personal here. And gave Himself for me. Your faith is the most important thing 
you have. Because God works through faith. Faith doesn't come only from intellectual knowledge. It has to be fought for. Paul says at the end of his life, I fought the fight of faith. He didn't say, I learned it. I figured it out. Figured out Jesus was the Messiah, that I'm sinful, that without Him, I'm going to face God on Judgment Day with all my sin. He didn't say that. He had to fight every morning. He said, I have to die to myself because I wake up with pride thinking way too much of myself and I have to die. And so as we come to this text, my main challenge for you to leave here is to pray that the Lord may grant you amazing faith and fight for it. Fight for it. You know, Zacchaeus had an amazing experience with Jesus, but he climbed a tree and got up in front of him. Put yourself in places where you're going to encounter Jesus. Come to church. Read your Bible. Hang out with Christians that speak the words of life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Your faith can't grow by the Sunday school knowledge you had as you coast through life. We got to fight for faith. But here's the comfort. In Luke 22:31, Jesus says this to Peter. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross and right before Jesus or Peter denies him. He says, Simon, Simon, uses his old name because Peter's acting in the flesh in this moment. When Peter would act in the flesh, he would call him Simon. When he would act in the Spirit or by faith in him, he'd seem to call him Peter. But he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It's most comforting. Jesus says, I prayed for you, Peter. And then Peter in all of his pride says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And then to a little girl who's accusing Peter of being with Jesus after Jesus is arrested, he denies him three times. Rooster crows. Peter looks back over his shoulder. Christ, we don't know how far, at a distance where they can make eye contact, looks at him. And Peter weeps. But Peter's learning faith. He's losing confidence in himself. And he's gaining confidence in the sovereign Lord that just predicted what was about to happen. But how comforting 
that Peter's faith endured. Why? Jesus said, I have prayed for you, Peter. What a comforting thing. A big part of the high priestly prayer in John 17 is Jesus praying for the endurance of His disciples, those who are following Him, for you and for me. Jesus prayed for us. He even prayed for your death. We pray for people's healing, which God wants us to do. But Jesus, 2,000 years ago, prayed that, oh Father, that they would be able to see the glory that I had with you before the world began. He wants His disciples who are trusting Him to see His glory. And our prayers of healing will either be answered by the grace of God or Jesus' prayer 2,000 years ago will be answered for His saints when they get to see that glory. But then in Romans 8.33, before we jump to the text, I just want you to see Christ praying for you. It says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. What's He doing there? Who indeed, I love that word, is interceding for the saints. For us. Who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus right now is at the right hand of God. That's in the present tense. And He indeed is praying and interceding on our behalf. So I hope you leave here today desiring a great faith. I hope you leave here fighting for that faith, praying to God that He would increase it. So let's look at this text. Uh, just coming down from the Sermon on the Mount, the points of those sermons uh, of the sermon, the poor, the hungry, the weeping, the hated, are the blessed ones. Remember that? The opposite of those are the cursed ones. Those who have ears to hear, what does he say? Those who can actually understand this sermon, love your enemies. He, he says, so repent, be humbled, know who you really are, and you'll be blessed. If you can hear that, love your enemies. And then he says, don't be like the false teachers. Judge not, and you'll not be judged. Give, and it'll be given to you. If you know that you're sinful and you have no righteousness, it doesn't make a lot of sense to get on your throne and judge everyone else in a hypocritical way. If you've been given grace and mercy by God, then give it away. Jesus is saying, if I loved you when you were enemies, you love your enemies. And then he says, don't follow blind guides that are teaching work salvation. If you follow blind guide, then you being blind yourself, you'll both fall into a pit and be destroyed. And then the sermon ends with two houses. They look exactly the same. One is built on the sand. One is built on the rock. And when the storm comes at Judgment Day, one falls, the other stands. They both look the same. These are two groups of people 
professing faith in Christ, following Him, saying, I'm a disciple. He's saying, some of your lives are going to end in destruction and some aren't. And here's what we see. And after He'd finished saying these things in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. And what you need to know about this town is Jesus maybe did more miracles here than any place uh, he ever was. This was kind of headquarters. He preached in all of Galilee. He did uh, miracles in all of Galilee. Uh, Capernaum is up in the northeast corner of uh, the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing community. And Jesus would go out to all these other places, but He'd always come back here. This is where, uh, very close to where Peter is from. He's from Bethsaida. Just uh, You can walk there in minutes. And um, these are probably the most lucky and unlucky people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. Because they got to see more of Christ's glory than anyone else. And yet, we're going to find out in a little bit, in Luke, I think it's chapter 17, we find out that people didn't believe there. That it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than them because of what they saw and did not believe. So that's where he entered. Now a centurion. A centurion is a captain in a Roman army. The way you became a captain uh, in the Roman army is you have to be a soldier first. You have to be battle-tested. You have to be proven to be faithful. Every time a centurion is depicted in the New Testament, we don't have time to look at them all, they're always put forth in an honorable sense. These are the guys you can trust. In be- they're battle-tested. Their integrity is high. They're like the policemen of their territory. There's 100 soldiers under them. That's why they're called centurions. It could be more, it could be a little less, but in general, they're a commander. They're a battle-tested man who everyone said, if you want your sons to be like men, have them be discipled by a centurion. So a centurion had a servant who is sick and at the point of death. Now that word servant can be translated slave. It's the word doulos. And when you read the early historians in, in Jesus' day, uh, even Aristotle said a slave or a servant is property. It's just mere property. And if one of your tools breaks, you throw it away. And it wasn't illegal when one of your servants got sick or injured to kill him. It wasn't murder. They were your property. They were owned by those uh, who had control over them. So you have a Roman centurion who, by the way, if you're a Pharisee or a scribe or a good Jew, the centurion represents Roman authority 
And these are like your arch enemies. You're upset that Israel is being controlled by a pagan Caesar and the closest evidence of him is a centurion. So he had a servant who was sick at the point of death, but surprisingly, he was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he heard faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. He sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and and heal his servant. Now, this is a weird scenario. What is going on here? A centurion is selling is sending elders of the Jews to Jesus. How can he have a good relationship with the elders of the Jews? This is a unique situation. And why does he even care about a slave? A boy who is at the point of death. In Matthew's account of this, he's paralyzed at the point of death. We don't know if it's a virus that paralyzed him, if he was paralyzed from birth. We doubt that because he's a servant. But he's at the point of death and he cares about him. He values him. And now he sends the elders of the Jews asking him to come heal his servant. Somebody had been preaching Christ to him. He had heard of Christ. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with Him earnestly saying, now note this, verse 4, He is worthy to have you come do this for Him. Wrong. But this is the Jewish mindset, right? This is the Jewish mindset. If you do good works, you're worthy of even the Son of God to come heal, right? Because we put the Son of God in a position where He has to do stuff for us. We're worthy, right? For Christ, no. But we see their work system in contrast to this servant. They say He's worthy to have you do this for Him. Now look at this. For He loves our nation. He loves His enemies. Right? This is shocking. For the elders to be willing to do this for one of their enemies, they were loved by this man. And then he says, He is the one who built us our synagogue. In the Greek, He is the one is in the emphatic, which means from His own self, His own money, His own money out of His pockets, He built the synagogue for this town. They're saying to Jesus, this is one centurion that's worthy to have you come. He's loving us. They don't necessarily understand why, but He is. He obviously seems to believe. He knows what happens in a synagogue. The Word of God is preached. And so He seems to be a God-fearer who believes in the God of Israel. And then, 
verse 6 says, And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. You see it? See, you look at it the first time, it just seems like, oh, another miracle Jesus did. We're coming right out of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're seeing a real life example of what loving your enemies looks like, of what true humility looks like, what true repentance looks like. And so he sends his friends, he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But I, but say the word, let my ser- and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority. Now he has a lot of authority, but that's not the first thing he points out. He's a man under authority. Gives an account to someone else. And then he says, uh, I'm a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this man knows that Jesus is Lord. You see that in verse 6? He recognizes his unworthiness. We don't have any other miracles like this. They're just coming right to Jesus, and Jesus in His grace heals them. Everyone, Jesus would heal everyone that would come to him, but this man seems to have an extraordinarily different type of faith. Look at verse 8. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say, go and one goes, and another come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at Him. There's two times in the Bible, two accounts in the Bible, where Jesus marveled. He marvels in Mark 6.6 at the disciples' unbelief in light of everything He has done in front of them. And He marvels here at the centurion's faith. Now, I'm sorry, but that challenges your theology. There's a mystery to this. (laughs) Because I know that faith is a gift of God. Faith is granted to people who have no faith when the Gospel's preached by the grace of God. But the starking... uh, uh, What's the word? I can't think of that word. I got a half the word out. Startling contrast between the Jews with, with all the Scriptures, with all that God has done for them in their past, and then Jesus to see this man's faith. And Jesus in His humanity marvels at this type of faith. And then Jesus says, when he had heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, 
Not even in Israel have I found such a faith. And when those had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You know, he just says, say the word. It doesn't even sound like Jesus needed to say the word. He's already healed. Go. It's already done for you. So what do we learn from this? Marvel at Jesus' marveling. Whatever Jesus marvels at, we should marvel at. When He marvels at unbelief, we should marvel at unbelief. We should look at it and say, I am astonished at how evil that is. And when He looks at this man's great faith and marvels, we ought to say, that is amazing. And when we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we have to admit when we're reading that, like, this type of life, this type of repentance and love for enemies and forgiving and not judging and following Christ, the true teacher, and not the blind teacher, is an amazing thing. And so if we're going to marvel not only at Jesus' marveling, but at this faith, what are the attributes of this faith? One, he's able to hear. In verse 3, it says, when he had heard about Jesus, he sent to him. One of the shocking things in the New Testament is the Gentiles believe and the majority of the Jews do not. It's a surprising thing. They're able to hear. His humility is worthy to marvel at. His love for His enemies. His generosity to build them a synagogue. The fact that He fears God so much and realizes Christ is Lord that He says, I'm not worthy to have Him come into my house. You see, He's still lacking in understanding the mercy of Christ. But He definitely is seeing His sin and the fact that Christ is perfect. It's amazing. It's worthy to marvel at the fact how Christ-centered He is. He's sending for Jesus. He knows where to go. There's false teachers everywhere. And yet, He's sending for Christ. And it's worthy to marvel at the rarity of this. There's not one other in Israel that has this type of faith. And then this text leaves us, I think, with a heavy note marveling at the unbelief of the people who have seen the most and know the most that they continue to remain in unbelief. Because here's Matthew, here's how Matthew's account ends. Luke leaves this part out. When Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who followed Him, Truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east in Israel. So these are Gentiles. Many will come from the east and from the west 
non-Jews, that's what a Gentile is. Many will come from the east and from the west. Um, and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. These are the fathers of the Israelites. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I think this ought to humble us. This ought to cause us to examine our faith. Have you been born in a Christian country? If you've been born in America, you've been born in a country where the culture identifies mainly as, in their religious category, as Christian. Now, obviously, the majority of America is not born again. The majority of those who claim to be Christians are not saved, are not born again. But, have you had access to the Word of God? How many Bibles do you have in your house? How many Bibles could you gather around if you just took two days to go gather them? How many teachers could you find on the internet that teach the Bible well? How many of your parents brought you to church? There's a chance that some of you, with all that background, would end up in hell while the meth addict will end up in heaven because the meth addict might understand the crucial thing that you don't. The meth addict might understand that I'm broken and I'm hopeless and I'm sinful and I need God. And the person who's raised as, I'm a good person, I don't, I'm not as bad as most people, I'm not a criminal, I don't cheat on my taxes that much, you know. In our pride, our faith falls and we don't look to Christ. So my prayer is, is that if all of Israel can be blind, the great majority of Israel rejects Christ, nails Him to the cross, and kills Him. And people like this Roman centurion who was not raised with it, who doesn't know anything, recognizes this is the Son of God. How, how else could this be? The prostitutes, the tax collectors, they saw it. And the religious proud did not. And this was what God had prophesied all along. God chose Israel, why? To be a light to the nations. That from Israel, the whole world would be blessed. And the Jews, the fact that God chose them among all the people made them proud. But even in their own Old Testament, God says, I didn't choose you because you, there was more of you in number. I didn't choose you because you were faithful or you were better than any other clan on the earth. God chose Israel to put His grace 
on display, and He chose them not to use their choosing to glorify themselves, but rather to bring God's glory to the nations so that they would worship. You see, anyone who wasn't a Jew was their enemy. They didn't want the whole world glorifying their God. They wanted God to make them distinct so that they could get glory from man. And you and I need to evaluate our lives and say, do I want God to get glory from my life? Why would we reach out to Somali's people? Well, when you look at your bleeding Savior on a cross who's dying for lost, broken sinners, the unlikely ones who no one thinks would ever come to Christ, and you know the truth, and you've received the truth, can we not want to share the hope? How often can with a friendly smile at Walmart, can we just say, thank you, God bless you, and I know what you need, but I'm too scared to get to know you. You're too different from me. That God would make our faith amazing. That we would, yes, lose all confidence in our own skill and in ourselves, but we would step forward in faith, expecting God to work through us. The Bible ends our, our, in, in Romans 11, uh, Paul talks about how, we don't have time to look at it, I'll just explain it to you, that a hardening has come on the Jews in judgment for rejecting the Messiah. The majority of Jews even today don't trust in Christ, though their whole Old Testament has prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that Christ fulfilled. It's a supernatural hardening that's on them. And the illustration he gives is the branch of Israel was broken off the tree and wild olive shoots, which is you and me, Gentiles, were grafted in to Israel. And the true Son of Israel is Christ. And by faith, we're grafted in. But in Romans 11, Paul says, don't get proud, Gentiles. Because when they got proud, they got broken off. And he talks about a day when God will lift the blindness again in the very end before Christ returns from their eyes. And a great number will come and trust Christ. So let us be humble. Let us not be proud. Let us pray that our faith increase. And if you want your faith to increase, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and watch Him in His mercy and grace lift you up and strengthen you. Father, it is unbelievable Your Word. This man's faith is humbling to all of us. I pray that we would be a people that love others, that are generous to others, that are obedient to You, our King, because we know 
what you've done for us. That you've died for us in our place, taking our sin upon yourself so that we might have the free gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray that there'd be no one who leaves here today hearing this and not trembling in their soul, crying out to You saying, Lord, save me. Humble me. Help me see what Christ has done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.